Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We are moving right along in our current biblical study, which class teacher Doug Brady has titled, Elijah, a Man of Conviction. And today's lesson looks in 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 17 to 24, as we find that Elijah faces disasters. We are learning that Elijah was a notable man who God blessed completely. By the time we finish this short series, we will learn of the things that Elijah did that no other earthly person has ever done. You will learn so much from this study. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 in LaVorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. We look forward to the many who come to visit our class each week, and we hope you will be one of them when you are in the area. Well, Doug is at the podium ready to begin this lesson, so turn in your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 17. Here now is our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. It seems to me as I do my preparation for some of these lessons, I think, you know, this is going to be a really short lesson. But as I started working, I found that I'm going to have trouble. And there were some things I wanted to talk about that I'm just not going to be able to talk about today. But I want you to consider thinking about them. If you go back to last Sunday's lesson, and you remember that the woman and her son were about to die, and Elijah says, give me your last meal. And after that, you have the flour and the oil never ceasing. Is that a type of something in the New Testament? Yes, I believe it is. And it's amazing what you can learn from trying to see those types. Today, you're going to see a type too. As something happens for the first time in history. And so I want you to think about that. I don't have time about that to really go into that today. But I want you to think about it. And that's kind of a homework assignment. I don't normally give you homework assignments. But I hope you'll think about those things. Now, God has over the history of the world, done some incredible things. I mean, just incredible. But most of the time that we know of, he's chosen to do that through human agents, human beings. But that creates a problem at times. You say something God does creates a problem? Well, yes, in this respect. Those who observe such acts or even hear of such achievements they tend to give the credit to the human being and not to God. The God who empowered them, the God who directed them, they, they all say, yeah, look what a mighty man Moses was. Moses was nothing without God. Amen. And as you think about it, 
I want you to understand that as a result, knowing that would be the result, God has worked in a specific way to determine the exact qualities he wants in the man or woman he chose, chooses. And in fact, he doesn't want any qualities except one. He only wants one quality. Do you know what it is, Don? Nope, that's not it. Nope, that's not it either. Well, that's appropriate, I think. You know what it is? Availability. All they have to do is be available, right? Exactly. Availability. Now, is there anybody here, if God wanted them to do something, who can't be available? I don't see anybody raising their hand. That would mean we all have the qualifications that God's looking for. I think that's right, and that tells us something. I mentioned Moses. I want you to look at Moses for just a second. Moses had to flee from Egypt because he'd committed murder. He was a murderer. Not too many of us in here are murderers, but Moses was. He spent the next 40 years of his life at a dead-end job working for his father-in-law, and when God finally called him to do what he had been preparing him to do, Moses claimed he was unqualified. Look what he said to God in Exodus 3, starting in verse 9. God is speaking first, and he says, Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel have come up to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Now, therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. That's what they've been waiting for for 400 years. How does Moses respond? But Moses said to God, Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. What did he say? I'm not qualified. Now, before we go any farther and we read the next passage, let's ask God to bless our time study today. Father, help us to realize that all you need is availability. Help us to realize that you're not concerned about qualifications. You're not concerned about families or skills or locations, or anything else except availability. And I pray that you'll help us to see that and come to understand that. Now, as we open your word, I pray that you'll bless our study and that you'll have your Holy Spirit be the teacher and that he will direct me what to say and direct my friends here what to hear and that it won't be just an intellectual understanding, but it'll be heartfelt and heart incited as we look at these principles and come to understand them. I pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. <coughs> I wanted to give you another example of a man like this about availability. Uh, it's a guy by the name of Gideon. My son, youngest son as he was growing up, he loved the character of Gideon. But the most part, it was because the teacher said in one of his classes, You need to pick a Bible hero and create something that would show and demonstrate something about how God used the man. Well, when he came home to me and said, Dad, we got to pick somebody. And he said, I think I would like Gideon. Well, well, Gideon, what are we going to do? Now, I knew exactly where Brooks was going. Well, Dad, we need to make a sword. Because remember, he held up the sword and said the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So we made a sword. And it was, school didn't particularly like it, but Brooks did. (laughs) Uh, 
He was in the same way, though. The Midianites were swarming all over his land. There was also, I hate to say, some Amalekites involved, too. We're everywhere. Yeah. Well, they were raping the produce of the fields and the vineyards, the women and children being carried off as slavery, and the men were being killed. And God comes to Gideon, he says, you're the guy who's going to deliver my people all by yourself. And how did Gideon respond in Judges 6.14? The Lord looked at him and said, go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? And he said to him, oh Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh and I'm the youngest in my father's house. Now, Gideon was real serious about that. Do you think that made a difference to God, that your family is the least in the tribe of Manasseh and you're the youngest in that family? He thought that it would. David was the same way. You're right. Now, God has chosen to do something special through Elijah. And in fact, it is something that has never been done before in the history of the world. We're going to see it today. Now, we don't know how long Elijah was in Zarephath when the events that we're going to talk about today happened. But I would think it's probably a year to a year and a half. He's been there. Steve, what happened every morning when they woke up? What did they find? Talk about the oil and flour. The flour was full and the jug of oil, the cruise of oil was full. What about when they came back in the evening? Did they use it all in the morning? Yep, used it all. When they came back in the evening, what did they find? Nothing. Oh, you are wrong. That's an Amalekite answering. I thought it was in, during the midnight, you know. No, twice a day, just like how often did the ravens come? Twice a day. It was there for a year and a half. The oil never runs dry. The flour is always there. They always have enough to eat. And then this happens. And we look at 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 17. Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. And his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. Now let's try and see what that says. I want to first talk about this phrase. Now it came about after these things. What things? Elijah going to Zarephath. Elijah meeting this woman who said, you want me to give you my meal? This is my last meal. We're going to eat this, my son and I, and then we're going to die because there's nothing else. We don't have any other means of supporting ourselves. Some of you maybe have been in that situation before, but Elijah said, no, give it to me first. And then there'll be something when you go back to be able to make meal for you and your son. She trusted Elijah And that's when it started. And they've been going on now for a year and a half, God providing for them. Those are the things. This story, you see, is about three people, three human beings. That woman, whose name we don't know, her son, whose name we don't know, and Elijah. And they are learning together about God. Now, I want you to think about this a second. Let's just look at the boy for a minute. In the evening, does a boy have a phone to look at? No. How about an iPad? No. Well, a laptop or computer? No. A television? I like these questions. Yes, yeah, I figured you could get them. Uh, that's why I came over here nearer to you. Does, do they have a radio to listen to the ball game? No. Nothing. What do you think they were doing in the afternoon, in the evening? Elijah 
was teaching every night. They were studying together. They were learning God's word and learning about him. That son was growing in faith. The mother was growing in faith. But now the faith is going to be tested. And I want you to see this because this is very, very important. We talked about this last time, this principle. What made Elijah the man he was? He was a man of conviction. A man of conviction. What does it mean to be a man of conviction? To be a man who was convinced of certain things. What was Elijah convinced of? God was real. He was God's man. And God had the power and the resources to enable him to meet whatever challenge he put before him. Now, becoming convinced of those things so that you are a man or a woman of conviction means your faith is put on trial and God comes through. Was she seeing that in the flower? Now, the ante is going to be up, so to speak. Now, she's going to have the most important thing in her life put in question. In fact, it's going to look bad, just like God did with Abraham. And so we come to it, and we look at the last part of this verse. His sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. Now, that's the way of saying the boy died. Some people want to doubt that when they read that verse. You will see as we go further in this passage, that kid was dead. Clearly dead. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Could God have prevented that boy from dying? Sure. He didn't. Why not? There was a reason. <laughs> he had a purpose. Exactly right. There was a purpose here. But this woman now suffered the worst possible loss she can imagine. You know, widows in this time area were at the bottom of the social strata. But she had one hope, for this boy to grow up so he can take care of her when she needs to be taken care of. That is what he wants, she wants more than anything else. And now what has happened to that hope? Dashed. Gone. Now, when crises come, bad things happen. Hmm. I have to watch out for that. When bad things happen, what do we normally tend to do? Blame. We tend to blame first. Do you remember when David was taking them back and everything had burned down and everybody's crying? And maybe they did despair first. But then they looked at who to blame. When you get in a crisis like that, you look to who to blame. And that's what she did. Look in, in that verse again. So she said to Elijah, what do I have to do with you, O man of God? What do I have to do with you, O man of God? As you see that up there, what, what is she saying? You're responsible for this, Elijah. And, pardon me? What her mission is, I mean, um, the question is, what, what do I have to do with you? What do you want me to do? Yeah, and, and what is that, isn't it? No, because you're going to see it's going to go farther than that. And you notice the next thing she says, oh, man of God. Who's she blaming? Elijah and God. She's confessing to God. <clears throat> oh, yeah, she already knows that because he supplied the flour for a year and a half. And the oil. He's asking what it costs. 
Yes, and we'll get to that in just a second, but I want you to see this. You know, you know who started this? Adam? When confronted with his sin? Well, God, it's the woman. Now, I'm glad that my gender never repeats that phrase anymore. It's the woman whom you gave me. If you hadn't given me to her, given her to me, wouldn't have happened. You know, blame. That's what we tend to do. We learned something, though, when we were studying in David. God's man or God's woman doesn't look to assign blame, but seeks to lead in the direction that God prescribes. So I want you to see this. We've looked at this passage, and she's looking at this. But what does she bring up here? And this is important. I want you to see this. You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance. What is she saying? You are now punishing me for the sin I committed because you are a man of God and God speaks through you. And so my son has died. If you had never come, this wouldn't have happened. Exactly. That's what a lot of believers think, by the way. They don't have to think that way if they get into the word of God. You're right. They don't have to. But what is one of the biggest problems with the evangelical community? They're not into the word of God. And the preachers aren't preaching it to them, and the teachers aren't teaching it to them. Well, now we're going to get in trouble, aren't we? Uh, I'm not referring to First Baptist Dallas, just for the record. Now, what sin did she commit? Same sin we commit. Yeah, but she's referring to a specific, just iniquity to my remembrance. I thought I'd gotten past that, but now you're bringing it back. What is... Number one, she's saying, well, obviously I wasn't forgiven. So n- now this has happened. Was her child out of wedlock? We don't know. That could have been. Could have been she was participating in some kind of extramarital type affair, or she could be a prostitute, or there could be all kinds of things. I think God doesn't tell us for a reason so that we can all fit there. Like Kim said, you know, the same sins we've all committed. And he wants us to see that. God... If you are a believer, and I believe this woman was, your sins have already been paid for. Now, there's a difference, and I want you to see it. Does God punish us? Answer, no, because he punished Jesus for us. Does God discipline us? Yes. Yes. Why? To get us back into the right direction. But it's different. Punishment is payment for what you did. Discipline is is leading you to the right road to go. And you need to see that. And so that's what's going on. She believed she wasn't forgiven. And so she thought her son was put to death for that reason. Now, here's the thing. She was accurate in one one respect. Her son was put to death. God allowed that disease to come in. I mean, you know, we know a lot more about diseases than they do now. But... That disease was coming. He was in contact with it. He caught it. And then he died. God didn't intervene at all. But there was a reason for it. It wasn't because of her sin. What it was, was to put to the test again for her and her son, their faith. Can I trust God that he's going to take care? That's what it is. That's what they need to see. Because did they trust with the Did she trust him with the food? Yeah. But what else did she have to do? There wasn't any other alternative. I guess I will trust. 
David. That's another thing. She forgot the blessing of their, life, of their lives. Yeah, and when the crisis comes like that, a devastating crisis, it's easy to forget, isn't it? The responsibility in her mind on him to protect him from now on. And he didn't. They didn't. So you go forward now, and and I want you to see what's going on next, because I want you to look at this from now from Elijah's perspective. He is there standing in front of him, in front of her, and she's clutching her dead boy to her breast. Tears are falling from her eyes. In her great pain, she's blaming Elijah. What does he do? What should a man or woman of God do in that circumstance? Well, he stands there listening to her, and he refuses to respond to her accusations. It's clear to him what she's saying, but he refuses to say anything at first. He just listens and lets her pour out her heart. You know, I'm afraid if I was there, I would say, now listen, lady. You were going to die a year and a half ago and your son. And now you're blaming me and God? Come on, lady, get with it. Just count your blessings. You got an extra year and a half. But that would have been a mistake. How difficult that would have been probably for us to do, to stand there and say nothing and listen to those accusations. Finally, when she's reached the end, he says something, and it's very pregnant with meaning. Give me the boy. Give me the boy. What is Elijah doing here? I want you to understand this for just a second and think about this. What he should have said is, give me the boy's dead body. But he didn't say that because he, I think, understood what was going on and what he planned to do. Now, wait a second. How many times before now has God raised somebody from the dead? Zero. Well, tell me one. I bow to your... I think that... I'm not going to say that, but you begin to see never before has that happened. How can he think God would do that? Because he knows his God. Yes. Yeah. If you look at the Mosaic Covenant in Deuteronomy chapter 32, he knows that God can do this. He knows that, but he's never done it up to then, right? No, but he knows that God can do it because he knows the Mosaic Covenant. From Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 36 and following, he knows what God can do in the text. So he's a very Mosaic covenant type of God. Well, he knew that. He probably memorized the first five books, right? That's what they had to do. What about speaking what is not into, into action? I'm not sure about that, Kathy. I want you to look, though, at this. I want to describe to you what Elijah was doing because there's something else he knew. He's something that David had written. He was standing tall and silent, but in the shadow of his God, grounded in faith, convinced of his Lord's power, and full of humility. Where did he get that? I just want to read the first part of this, of this passage in Psalm 91, 1 through 4. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. This word abide here could mean almost thrive. That's what he's doing. He's standing in the shadow of God Almighty, letting her rant, letting her say whatever she wants. And then all he says is hold out his hands and says, give me the boy. Now, when she gives him the boy, he then walks out of the house. Well, no, wait a second. He went to the upper room. There were no stairs inside. The stairs were outside. And walks up to his room 
with that boy. Look in 1 Kings 17, 19. And he said to her, give me the boy. Give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom, carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. Now, I think we have to extrapolate here to a small degree in understanding how had he been spending most of his time day and evening for a year and a half by the brook sheriff? What was he doing? He was praying. How would he spend his time of his day right now talking to God? Do you think he stopped talking to God once he relocated to Zarephath? No, of course not. When he would pray, most of the time it would have occurred in the room at the top of the house, which was his room. You see, he had a place of prayer there that he had established in the top of the house. You know, he had to be careful that people would not come to know that a Jew was living in the house of this woman, or he might be arrested and carried away in chains to Ahab. So he spent a lot of time indoors there by himself praying. So when the tragedy struck, when the son died, where did he take him? To the place of prayer. Now, we need to think about this just a second. Do you, in your home, or right outside of your home, have a designated place of prayer? And if the answer is no, why not? Julie could tell you where my place of prayer is in my home. That place of prayer is very special to me. I remember one time my son going through a difficult time, and I told him, Brooks, you just got to take this to God and pray about it. That day I came home a little early, and I looked in his room to find him, and he wasn't there. So I started, well, I'll just go to the bedroom, take my suit off, and then I'll go. And as I started to walk in, there was my son in my place of prayer, beseeching God to give him an answer. When the second most important event in my life occurred, that is that I learned that I was in love with Julie Zawala. It was at the place of prayer, and she was right across from me. So when it's only natural when I asked her to marry me, it was in the same place of prayer. You remember that? Special times because it's a special place. You need to find you a place. When you're there, anyone else in your house would know, leave them alone. They're talking to God. He had that place. He, this is a serious situation. You know, he didn't just kneel right there after she gave. He took that boy to the place of prayer. Yes. Um, I think of Elijah as a man with a nature like our own. Yes. Place of prayer for a year and a half. The widow, God's been providing all this time. And when he gets up there to his room, he's very frustrated with God. It's not a matter of trust. It's just a matter of frustration. Lord, what's going on? So he, has, he has a nature like our own. Right. He's been obedient. She's been obedient. In fact, when and we'll mention that in just a second. When she went to, get, when she went to go get the, that, that last piece of bread... He told her not to fear. She was, she was very prophetic. So they're both frustrated in whatever it is that God struck. She is more than frustrated, Gary, I think. She is sad. She's blaming. She's in all kinds of consternation. I think Elijah is a little different. He doesn't quite understand it yet. No, he's very upset with God. Well, let's talk about that. Let's see. And we'll look at that passage here real quick. It's in verse 20. 
And he called to God and said, O Lord, my God, have you brought a calamity to the widow with whom I was staying, causing her son to die? Have you done this? You know, the widow's saying he did. So Elijah was silent, but here I think he raises the tough questions in the place of prayer. Have you brought this calamity in the widow? Isn't that what he says? Have you, oh Lord, have you brought this calamity? It's a question. He wants to know, are you responsible for this? Now, I don't see that either, but it's a, something he wants to know. Lord, my God, he said, what are you doing? Well, when you normally pray first, do you not address the Almighty? I don't always address it as, oh Lord. No, uh, uh, my father, maybe. You want to extrapolate, extrapolate, oh Lord, my God. Well, if you want to think that that's a statement of frustration or anger, that's fine. I don't see it that way. I see it as a question. He's coming before his master saying, I have this question and it's, it's important to me. Have you brought this calamity to the widow with whom I'm staying, causing her son to die? Did you cause her son to die? I don't think this man is speaking out in anger, but there's a word that I think is important to see here that's, that's got a lot of meaning. I want you to see this word, also. Wait, what does this mean, also? Have you also brought calamity to the widow? Well, that would ind- indicate another calamity, right? Somewhere else? She's already been through calamity. She's a widow. She has no power. She lives in a pagan country. And she has no food, no water. The brook dried up and no oil. And she's getting her sticks to have her last meal and die. Now, there's another calamity, though, I think he's talking about, Kim. And we need to see. Well, let's talk about it from this. There was a calamity and their son died. But he's saying also brought this calamity. Now, what did he pray? Let's say, just for sake of understanding, we're in three years into this. A year and a half and a year and a half. And there's another half year to go. Three years into this, three years ago, what did Elijah pray? No rain. What is happening to his people? They're dying. There's a serious calamity before, but why? They deserved it. Well, they did. They did. What did this, what did this widow deserve? So you also brought this calamity? I understand the calamity on my people, but this too? So how is God going to respond to this? Yep. I think there's a possibility it exists on that statement that it is a statement of grieving on his behalf because he's observed all this. I'm sure there is a a grief in his heart because I think he loves this boy. And I'm not going to tell you how I know that yet because it's coming in two weeks. (laughs) Sorry. Two weeks on Mount Carmel. We'll find out. But look at verse 21, what he does. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to Yahweh and said, Oh, Yahweh, my Elohim, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. Now, up to this point, nobody had ever been raised from the dead. This method he used, where'd he come up with that? We don't know. But Elijah was asking his God to do something that was unprecedented. Now, here's something else. Who was going to witness this miraculous event if it happened? 
Only three people. This isn't going to be a miracle that's going to spread out everywhere. And so in 1 Kings 17, 22, Yahweh heard the voice of Elijah. Now, let's stop right there. Yahweh heard the voice of Elijah. Why did he hear the voice of Elijah? Two reasons. Number one, he was praying fervently or earnestly for this son. Number two, it was a prayer of a righteous man. We'll see that again in just a second. Yeah. Three, he believed it was going to happen. Well, I think that goes with the righteous, but yes. Now, but I think he believed the same way that Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah believed. We're going to obey him no matter what. If we die, we die. Esther, I'm going to obey and I'm going to go into that king. If I die, I die. Job, you know, the Lord sent me into this life with nothing. And if he wants to take me out, fine. I'll still trust him. But look at what it says in James we've brought up. Yes, sir. Apologies if I major in the minor, but to that point of what you were just saying, I'm still hung up back on verse 20, the fact that he, that he questioned God. I'm still hung up there. I think we can trust. Now, did he question God in front of the widow? No. no. But in his private time with the Lord God, there's nothing wrong to questioning God. I don't understand what you're doing. You told me that we will be taken care of here, and that this widow would provide for me, and that here's how it would happen. I think his choice is bewilderment. Yes, I think you're right, bewilderment. And, you know, I think he also realized something was going to be a part of this boy. This boy was going to be used in a special way. Mark? I think for us as believers, uh, it's entirely appropriate to question God because we have a relationship. Amen. Sometimes God will tell you the answer. Sometimes it's, I'm going to tell you, but not right now. And sometimes you don't need to know. He has a place for all of us. But you have to move on. Yep. How many times have I questioned God? Why did this happen? I can remember a time out on my front lawn. Why are you taking my mother's life? Now he didn't. Yep. He's also saying, well, you sent me here to say this. Yeah. You sent me here, and now this. Look at James 5. It says, the fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain for three years and six months. He also was asking God to take care of this widow, and God provided. And then he asked God, to raise her son back to, from the dead, and he did. For the very first time in history, a person was raised from the dead. And so I think this action, how do you think this action felt to Elijah? As he picked that boy up who was now alive and carried, her out, carried him outside of the room, down the stairs to his mama. How do you think he felt? How do you think he felt when he handed that boy to his mother? I think there were no words to describe what happened in that little upstairs room. But one thing we can know for certain that happened there, it happened in the place of prayer. Now, consider what he did in response to this exercise of power. Elijah took the child, 
brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son is alive. Now, those people who want to say, well, he didn't really die. This would be a lie. This is saying now he's alive, which means before he was dead. Now, Elijah didn't say, look at what I have done. Now, imagine for a moment the mother's heart. It seems to me that what Elijah did was to hand this boy back to his mother and then step back into the shadows and let her see the Lord God of Israel and his wonder-working power. And what were the results? What happened as a result of what he did? Look at verse 24. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord, word of Yahweh, in your mouth is truth. Now, this is very, very important for us to see. I want you to see something. She says, now I know. That word in the Hebrew, know, is yodea. It means an experiential knowledge. It means an intimate knowledge. If you look, if you have the King James and you look in there, and I think it's Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, and it said, and Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to a son, and they named Adam knew his wife. You know, I'm not going to explain to you exactly what happened in that event, but I'm hoping you understand well enough that it's speaking about an intimacy between a husband and a wife. That's the way this word is kind of used, an intimate, personal experience. Now I know for certain, at the zenith of the test for me, because I was losing the most important thing in my life, and you came through with your promises. Now, you notice she's kind of directing this at Elijah, but it's important to understand, where can she get God's word? Only from Elijah. There's no Bible there. Uh, the Gideons don't come through. Uh, there's no scrolls or library she can go to uh, as Sidon or Zarephath. Ethbel probably burned anything down that was there. So when this woman saw her, she no longer saw Elijah, she saw El Shaddai, God Almighty. Candace. Believing something or believing in something. If you picture Niagara Falls, this is the analogy. Picture Niagara Falls, and someone is strung a wire, and there's a guy on the bicycle, he's going to ride the bicycle across the wire. And you believe that he's going to make it to the other side. You don't doubt that. But when he comes to you and says, hey, you get on my back. That's the Did you hear that? What she's saying, there's a difference between believing and believing in something. And it's believing in something is where you're willing to put yourself in that position. And here she had been put in this position, and she says, now I believe. Both she and her son's lives have been indelibly changed. Yeah, Susan? We also have to realize the Lord is omniscient. So it wasn't just the widow, the son, and Elijah that knew what happened. He wrote it down in this book to talk to all of us. You're right. At the time, I meant we didn't know. But then once this first Kings is, is written and God is telling them this, and it's interesting to see. Some people would say, well, this isn't really something that should be in the Bible. Why? Because one who was an eyewitness didn't write it. Well, the Holy Spirit was an eyewitness and he was the one. And when we get to our study in, in 2 Timothy, we'll see that. Gary, you had a comment? Yeah, I 
Just the word now. How do you how do you take the word now? Now I know. I think now is I am completely convinced. She wasn't before. This was too much. Now, now I know. In the same way, in Genesis 22, when Abraham went and was ready to cut his, his son's throat, and, and Jesus called from heaven and said, stop, don't do it. And then the next thing Jesus says, now I know that you fear me. Now I know. It's an experiential statement. Just a sec. So there's a difference in levels of faith based on the type of miracle? Because it was a miracle to have daily provision of water. It was. But there is difference in the levels of faith. You've known people that have stronger faith than you, and you've known people who have weaker faith than you. And what God wants to do in all of us is to build that faith up to the highest level so that he, you really trust him no matter what's at stake. It's one thing to have your food at stake. It's another thing, can he bring back my son? Yeah. I don't think I'm ready to, to believe that she had, she had saving faith before this. I believe this right here says... At this point, she really had saving faith. All right, well, you and I can agree at this point, she is saved at this point. At this point Whether it was before or now. A lot of people, they'll go to, Bible, you know, to a beach party, the church has put it on. I didn't mean beach party. Uh, you know, some gathering. Right, or they, they're following through with Christian actions. They say, why don't you come with me? And they get up there and they accept God your Savior. And I'm not saying it's real or not real, but it may not be real. I believe at this point right here, there's no doubt in her mind, and this is where she gets saved right here. And that's my, that's power. Okay. And I think somebody could look at it that way. I think it was before, but we'll, we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Look at Deuteronomy 18 in the last verse, where it talks about the test of a prophet. I think, I think earlier in the text where it says that she... I think that she was already a believer because she knew who the prophet was and she feared God at that point. So at the point at which the text says that she feared, I think she was already a believer. Because if you go back and look at Deuteronomy 18, the last verse, it says in there that, that what the prophet says does, does not come true, do not fear him. She feared, and therefore I think she was a believer and understood I think you can make that argument. Let me have a few things here that I want to go over that I think are important that we should learn from this passage. We know that we're going to face a crisis in our life. They're coming. If you've never faced a crisis, all that means is you have a number in store for you. In addition to that, you're going to have friends and, and people who you care about who are also going to face crises. And we need to talk about these for a second. If there is someone who faces a crisis, or you have to face a crisis in your life, I think we follow Elijah's example. Number one, we stand silent for a time. Mouthing off immediately in the midst of a crisis is not always the best thing to do. You say things many times you're sorry for. Be silent for a while and take a time in the conviction of this, that you know that God's real, that you know that you belong to Him, and that you know you have the power and the resources to enable us or enable yourself to meet whatever challenge he puts before you. Those convictions. Now, a second thing that I want you to consider. 
Rarely do I ask you to memorize anything that's not scripture. But there are some things I have asked you to memorize or, or to learn. I asked you to memorize the eight characteristics of an uncompromising life that we studied in the book of Daniel. For a member, a man or woman who lives an uncompromising life will speak and act with unashamed boldness. That was the first one. I asked you to consider memorizing the six aspects or attributes of godly integrity. For example, one of them is that a man or a woman of integrity keeps their word even to their detriment. And then I asked you to learn the six parts of radical obedience. You remember immediate, unquestioning, uh, unconditional, and, and so forth. I think there's four things here, four statements, four questions that you ought to put in the back of your mind and keep for when the crisis comes. Maybe you put it on a piece of paper and you put it in your wallet or your purse, or maybe you open your phone and you put it down in the notes app so that you could always find it. The first one is this, I am here by God's appointment. I am here by God's appointment. Why was Elijah there? Because God wanted him there. He was by God's appointment, number one. Number two, I am in his keeping. Number three, I am under his training. And number four, he will show me his purpose in his time. Those four statements are key to dealing with a crisis in your life or in somebody else's life. And you can share those. They will be, I think, of great help to whoever is going through the crisis. But you have to have them available at just the right time. Let's take a few closing things to heart. You look at it first, in a general way, there's three enemies. Satan and his minions, the world, and our flesh. But the wise man has to look a little deeper than that. For example, who are the enemies of godliness? Islam, Mohammedism, Mormon, get in trouble here, but Catholicism. We need to go on because I want you to see these. these. These things I want you to take to heart. When the supplier is God, he has everything we need and he never runs dry. When the supplier is God, he has everything we need and he never runs dry. He never runs out. He never has to ration. God rationing, it almost sounds funny to me. Number two, when God has performed a miracle in our lives, our troubles may not be over because there's still more faith to build. Until the day you die, do you think you have ever reached the level of faith that you can't go any higher or stronger? No. No, it's going to keep going. Sometimes right after a miracle, we're going to find in Elijah's life, you're at your most vulnerable. And you've got to be prepared for that. Number three, all of his children will learn one time or another that we're not going to rely on human explanations. We're to live relying on God's promises. Not on human explanations. First of all, what would the human have said? Well, yeah, she's going to die. Unless you've got some money or something, she's not going to have any more food. Uh, and Elijah's response is, I know the living God. And that's all it takes. Now, she brings Elijah her dead boy. 
Well, what are you going to do? Well, there's nothing that can be done. If you, you know, maybe if you'd have brought him to the right person before, he could have stopped this death from happening. But now, once he's dead, it's all over. That's the human explanation. That's not God's. And we need to remember that. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this time that we could have together. And I thank you that we could have a chance to look at this passage and that we could see these important principles that you have laid out for us just in these few verses. You see a man who is so committed to you, a man of conviction. I pray, Father, that you'll help me to be a man of conviction, that you'll help my friends here today to see that they need to be men and women of conviction and how you build that conviction. Now, Father, help us to be prepared to be able to tell ourselves when the crisis hits that I'm here by God's appointment and that I'm in his keeping and that I'm under his training and that he'll show me in his purpose at his time if he so chooses. Now, Father, before I finish, I want to pray for our nation. You know better than anybody here all of the evil, the wickedness, ugliness of the sin that is going on in our land and our land needs healing more than anything else but there's only one thing that will bring that healing father and that's revival and so i pray father that you will somehow some way bring your gospel to america that people will be prepared to stand up and not be ashamed of it not allow the world to intimidate them but to know your word and to speak it with unashamed boldness. I pray that you will do that and turn the hearts of the people in this land back to you and heal it. Thank you that we can come before you whenever we choose. Thank you for giving me a place of prayer. And I pray, Father, that you will encourage everyone here if they don't have one to locate, set up, and promise to you a place of prayer. I ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.